Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And we welcome all the Bible study with us here on a hot Sunday morning in St. Louis. Whether you're here in person in the gym or whether you're uh, listening in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM or literally worldwide online at KFUO.org, we welcome you and pray God's abundant blessing upon our time in his word this morning. Uh, for those in the gym here, we have Bibles in the back. We're going to be looking at Luke starting uh, Luke 11, starting at verse 1 today. I know Pastor Wade got through chapter 10 last week, and uh, we'll start with 11, verse 1 today. We're going to be talking a lot about prayer today. Luke's version, we might say, of the Lord's Prayer is the first thing we'll be looking at. But then actually the first 13 verses deal with prayer itself. And so that'll be, at least to begin with, uh, our main focus here this morning. Let's begin, however, with a word of prayer, if we might. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that as we again were reassured in your word, Christ is in all things. Through him, all was created, and he reconciled all things to you by his life, death, and resurrection once again. We thank you for this opportunity and every opportunity to, to delve into your word, and we pray the Holy Spirit will be with us and will guide and bless our time in that word together, that we might continue to grow in our understanding of that word, and especially also of your will for us as your children here in this world. So we pray your blessing then to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. I think it's been a while since I've been in here, uh, at least five or six weeks. Some, I think it's got to be at least five weeks. I've preached the last five weeks in a row, so it's got to be at least six weeks, I guess. So uh, it's good to be with you and uh, be in God's Word. As I said, we're going to look a little bit at prayer here this morning, uh, Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. But before we delve into chapter 11 of Luke, uh, just a few words about prayer itself and uh, uh, may uh, spring some discussion, I'm not sure. Uh, first of all, those of you who have been at the early service know that Luke 11, uh, verse 1 and following, is again the gospel lesson for today. This has been lining up uh, perfectly on Sundays. We did not design it to be this way. It has just happened that uh, it is, in fact, if we planned it, it probably wouldn't have worked out this well. But uh, anyway, so we look, first of all, at the fact that Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. We probably don't notice that as much as we should as we read through the Gospels. He himself was many times alone in prayer, and other times uh, was assuring the disciples that he is praying for them. And so as a rabbi would at that time, he set a great example, not only in word, but in deed before his own disciples. Um, just a couple of spots here. If you want to keep your finger in Luke 11 and just turn back to Luke 5, uh, show you one, um, uh, one of these spots where we pick this up. Luke 5, uh, 15 to 16. Luke 5, 15 to 16. So Luke writes now, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed, uh, helped, yeah, healed of their infirmities. But he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
And the New American Standard Version, I think, even more um, faithfully, uh, translates that would often withdraw. In other words, it was an ongoing act. It wasn't just at this time. Luke, I think, is wanting to get even more across than that, that he would often withdraw. It was a, a repetitive type of ongoing action. Okay? And notice where he goes. He goes to a desolate place, the wilderness, for example. A uh, whole other Bible class could be on how the uh, wonderful spiritual things happen so often in the wilderness, and the sinful things, <laughs> the bad things, uh, happen in villages and towns. But that's, as I say, that's a whole other Bible class for another time. But notice here that Luke picks up on the fact, now again, was Luke one of the disciples? No. Remember, he, he put together, he researched and put together an orderly account here for this guy named Theophilus. So this was well known that Jesus would oftentimes go into a desolate place and pray. The other thing I want to note about this is that obviously Jesus was not going to pray in order to put on a show for people, right? Like the, uh, the story he told about the Pharisees and Sadducees who would stand on the street corners praying so that, you know, they might be seen by other people. No, he's, he's in genuine communication with his father and, and did that apparently often. All right, now, if you keep your finger back in Luke 11, just turn a chapter more now, Luke 6, verse 12. And this is right before he appoints the apostles, the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, right? Just prior to that, sorry, Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Notice that? All night he was in prayer to God or to the Father. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then it goes on to list the names of those apostles. Um, we're not told what he was praying about, but just in terms of the action that follows right after that, what might he have been praying about up there all night on that mountain, do you think? What might have been included, I should say? He's about to appoint what, the twelve disciples, and so it's probably uh, reasonable to think that at least a part of his prayer time that night with the Father was concerning these twelve, right, whom he is going to appoint. And of course we know the hardships that later on they are going to endure in their lives, praying perhaps to the Father that they would not, that they would be kept strong in their faith and not and not fall away as a result of the persecution uh, that certainly was going to come even after his death and resurrection and ascension, but that they would remain faithful. And so again, uh, but notice here, all night he is in prayer to the Father. We won't look at it, but in John 13 through 17, we have the, uh, what's normally referred to as the high priestly prayer. On Monday, Thursday evening, he prays for a number of of different subjects or objects, I should say, uh, at that time, including us. You know, blessed are those who have not seen and yet will believe. Um, then there is in the Garden of Gethsemane, I guess one of the most um, well-known of prayers 
If you want to look at it in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 36 and following. This reminds me, I was, while you're turning, Matthew 26, 36 and following. I was reviewing with our confirmands this last year before questioning night, and we were reviewing what uh, happened on Monday, Thursday evening. And I said to the confirmands, now, after Jesus was done in the upper room, after he instituted the Lord's Supper, he went to, he left the upper room and he went to a garden with the disciples. Do you remember the name of that garden? And one of the confirmands, Olive Garden. I said, no, that's, uh, there were olives there, but no, that's, <laughs> and it was the Mount of Olives, but uh, no, that's close, but not quite right. Anyway, now that we're here, Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so James, John, and Peter go. They always are there on the inner circle, it seems. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we get just a window there into the, the great agony that he went through knowing what is coming that night, what is about to happen that night. And we won't read the rest of it, but as you know, he comes back a second time. For the first time, they're asleep, tells them to stay awake, goes off, prays, comes back a second time, they're asleep again, and so on. And he is in prayer. And I guess one more thing to take from this is that, you know, Jesus knows what it is like to be in agony and to go to the Father in prayer. That, I hope, is of comfort to us. In other words, we do not have a Savior who is unfamiliar with the kinds of, at times, torment that we can be in in our lives. And here is a prime example of that. He was he is true God, but is also 100% true man. And we see that emotion right here, knowing what is going to come. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay? Um, I want to uh, give credit to Dr. Dale Meyer on Friday. I don't know if any, do any of you get the Meyer Minute, uh, either email or Facebook at all? It's a... He puts out every, every day, actually, every, maybe it's every weekday, I'm not sure, but a Meyer Minute, and the one Friday was on prayer. And so just a couple of other spots. Um, he assures Peter in Luke 22, verse 32, Luke 22, 32, he says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So we get Jesus praying, he even says to Peter, I have prayed for you. And we're going to find out in just a moment that Jesus is also praying for you and for every one of us as he is before the Father right now. Um, John 17, verse 9, and again, you don't have to look this up, but just he's, he's praying to the Father. This is that high priestly prayer. I am praying for them, meaning the disciples, 
I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And that was the disciples at that time and all believers and would extend today, of course, to all believers. And then finally, one, one other example, or one other verse, in Romans 8. And we, when we look at Romans 8, so often we'll look at Romans 8, 28, that God works for good in all things to those who are called uh, according to his purpose. But verse 34 of Romans 8 gives right at the end a powerful uh, and very encouraging message to us. It says here, uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and here's the part, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the work of Jesus did not stop with his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, as great as all that was, even now, he intercedes for us and for all believers before the Father. So again, this whole idea of prayer and interceding on behalf of one another is something that Jesus set a great example in doing for his disciples, even assuring Peter that he is praying for him, and as we have in the Word of God, he is also interceding for us and all believers uh, before the Father in heaven. Okay? And so um, we, won't, we could talk a long time about this, but I think, again, just in the same way that Jesus set the example for prayer with his own disciples, um, we certainly hope that in our homes that we who are parents and have children yet remaining at home, or we could say grandparents who have uh, grandchildren uh, coming over, that, that we set a similar type of example in going to the Lord in prayer. Because that's not an example they're going to pick up, are they, in the general culture, right? And so even something as simple as a prayer before a meal, right? that we don't just dive into our food. First of all, we thank the giver of that food for those gifts. Um, I don't know, if, uh, maybe I've told this story before, if I have, please forgive me, but years and years ago, when our son was probably like seven or eight, we went to Disney World in Florida, and we, we went and got lunch, and we're sitting in one of these large open areas, and we did what we always do, we bowed our heads in prayer, we got done, and we're about to put our trash away in the trash can, and uh, this woman walks over and says, I saw you prayed before you ate. And she said, I just want to tell you that meant a lot to me to see a family doing that. We were just a couple of weeks ago out at a restaurant with some friends, and my wife pointed out, she said, uh, we were sitting there, and she said, there was a big table of about 10 or 12 people they all bowed their heads when their food came right beforehand. It's kind of a, not only for our own family, but it's a witness to others, isn't it? Uh, so we don't normally think of prayer as being a witness, but there is an opportunity there to witness, isn't there, uh, when we pray. So anyway, just maybe something to keep in mind. Uh, those of you that uh, grew up in Christian homes uh, certainly can uh, recall, I'm sure, how your parents uh, set that kind of example for you and prayers before meals, prayers before bed, prayers when, you know, bad news comes, praying for somebody who's ill. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And what a privilege we have, um, you know, in terms of 
of that, that, that great opportunity. Just one reference, there's a reference uh, to this idea of Jesus interceding for us before the Father in the well-known, uh, one of our favorite Easter hymns, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. Verse 3, I remember? He lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead for me above, right? And that's exactly what that is referring to. His pleading for us above, or his interceding for us before the Father, okay? All right, so with that as some background, let's dive in now to Luke 11. One, we'll go 1 through 13. I'm going to read 1 through 4, first of all, and then we'll go back and talk about this. So first of all, um, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. All right. Anybody surprised by this, uh, this uh, Lord's Prayer? Anything seem a little different here? This is, this is obviously different than the one we ordinarily say in church, which is recorded in Matthew 6, verses 9 and following in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. This, we think, is a different setting uh, than Matthew 6 was, obviously, where Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And it is certainly not unreasonable to think that here Jesus would teach his disciples, not using precisely the same words, as are in Matthew 6, but uh, in here, where in Matthew 6, we have the introduction, the Our Father, it's Father here. We have seven petitions in the Matthew 6 version. We have five here. And frankly, the ending that we have in Matthew uh, uh, 6, in fact, a lot of your Bibles will have an uh, asterisk or a footnote to say that that conclusion, that for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen, was probably not, and actually we think was not, uh, in the original Lord's Prayer that was given. It's not in Luther's small catechism. It wasn't, at least. It's been added since. And what we think happened was, in worship, the congregation would say that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and then there would be a choral response for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that, over time, it all kind of just got put together. And there's certainly nothing wrong with praying that conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's, there's, it's, it's a wonderful conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. But again, probably was not in the original version in Matthew 6. If any of you have been at a uh, Catholic wedding or a wedding in a Roman Catholic church... Uh, you may have found yourself continuing when the rest of the congregation stops <laughs> before the ending. And uh, I always tell people, well, actually, the Catholics kind of got that right. And again, there's nothing wrong with us uh, saying that conclusion. And again, it's, it's absent here in, uh, in Luke's version as well. Uh, this is one of the, in fact, it is the only spot in the, in the Gospels 
where the disciples actually asked Jesus to teach them something. <laughs> they should have asked a lot more than they did. But this is the only time uh, he asked them, they asked him to teach them something. And notice, teach us how to pray. Why would they ask him, teach us how to pray? The rabbis at that time, that's one of the things that they would do, is teach their students, their disciples, how to pray. In other words, what language do you use? How do you address God? What do you say to God when you're praying to him? We want to do it right, the, the uh, students would say. And the rabbis all had their ways, their method of praying. And we know from their question, who was teaching his disciples how to pray? John, and it would be which John? John the Baptist, right? And we know he had disciples, because remember, they came to Jesus with a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? So John had his disciples. He's teaching them how to pray. And here Jesus' disciples say, teach us to pray. Um, and again, we wish we knew more about the interaction between John's disciples, Jesus' disciples, John and Jesus. We have what we have. And certainly that's enough, but we wish we knew more. Somehow, Jesus' disciples knew that John the Baptist was teaching his disciples, and they wanted to know as well. This brings up a curious question. Where were the disciples when the Sermon on the Mount was being done? Didn't they hear it? Or did they hear it and want further instruction? We just don't know. It's one of those curious questions. Okay? All right, so... Jesus accommodates them and says, he said to them, when you, are, when you pray, say, Father. Now let me ask you this. Good thing or bad thing that Jesus instructs us, and well, at first his disciples, but us as well, of course, to address God as Father. Good thing, bad thing, indifferent thing? What do you think? Yeah, some of you are, are, are nodding your head. That's a good thing. We only have a couple, a few spots in the Old Testament where in Isaiah, it's in Isaiah primarily, that God is addressed as Father. But here, Jesus encourages us to, when we address God, call him Father. Okay? Now, this is an opportunity to review a little bit from Luther's small catechism from our confirmation days. And you may recall that in Luther's explanation to the first article, or to the, uh, to the introduction, I'm sorry, he says, what does this mean? With these words, mainly our Father, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father and that we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. Okay? So this is a, we would say, a very good thing. That when we think about our relationship with God, we address him as father. And isn't it interesting when you stop and think about it, that Jesus... And it's through Jesus. What does what Jesus call God? Uh, well, I can't, 
what does Jesus, when he prays, what does he say? Father, right? What do we have the privilege of saying? The same thing that Jesus says when he addresses his father. Through Jesus, his father is our father. And it's only through Jesus that we can have any approach to God. And here it's in a loving way, referring to him as Father. And I know in saying this that there are some uh, children uh, who did not have the blessing of a loving Father. But what is intended here, though, is exactly that, that we address God as our loving Father, that we come to him with all confidence, not that, we are, not that we are going to come before him in fear and trepidation, but just the opposite. We come before him just as a child would approach his loving father to ask for something from his, from his loving earthly father. In fact, Jesus will make this comparison uh, coming up. Okay. Next, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. We say that a lot in church. What does that mean? What does this mean, to quote Luther? Hallowed would be another name for holy. Holy be your name. So when something is holy, it is what? It is set apart for God, for special use, for God's use in this case, right? So his name is to be set apart or um, different, not, not common, let's say. It is to be set apart. And again, Luther says in his explanation to hallowed or holy be your name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be holy among us also. In other words, Luther is saying that by praying, hallowed be your name, we're not making God any more holy, are we? (laughs) He's he's already completely holy and, and righteous, sinless, blameless in and of himself. I'm not going to make him any more holy by praying that. But I pray that in this petition, by praying that petition, his name might be holy where? In my life, right? In my life. And then Luther goes on to ask the next question. How is God's name hallowed in my life? And we won't read through the explanation, but there's basically two things that Luther points out. That God's name, uh, God's word rather, is taught in all of its purity in in our midst. And secondly, that my life is lived in accord with that word. Those are the two things. And we're praying, let this happen in our lives here, in our midst. That your word would be taught in all of its purity and truth. There was no, no false teaching, no blasphemy. And then that my life might conform to that word. Okay? And of course, this is not unconnected to the second commandment. Uh, that uh, and Luther's explanation to it that we well first of all that we do not take the name my memorization was we don't take the name of the Lord in vain right 
Now the new, tra- I don't know why we keep changing the translation after we, <laughs> the catechism. I like, I like the way one I learned. We're all that way, right? Why do they change it? Uh, uh, but remember the explanation. Again, the old explanation. We should fear and love God that we may not curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie, or deceive by his name. But positively, what? Call upon in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Right? So Luther, in his, his explanation of the, the second commandment, gives both the negative, what we shouldn't do, but also then the positive uses of God's name. So we use God's name continually when we are praying, praising, and giving thanks for him, right? And unfortunately, we, are, we live in a culture where God's name is misused many times, isn't it? It is, it is used by some people just to punctuate a sentence. They think giving it more, I guess giving it more uh, force or power. In fact, I think some people have gotten so used to doing it that they don't even stop and think about you know, what they're actually saying when they take God's name or the name of Jesus and use it needlessly. When they're not praying, praising, or giving thanks, uh, they're doing something quite different. And what God is, and what Christ is saying here that no, the name of our God is to be set apart and is, is to be set apart in our lives. So we are praying that it may be so in our life. Okay? All right, better move on. Your kingdom come. Now, what kind of a kingdom? First of all, what is a kingdom? A kingdom, you've got to have a king at the top, right? No, no kingdom without a king, usually. Uh, and then... What kind of kingdom are we talking about here? Are we talking about your, you set up an earthly kingdom here, Lord, and, and rule in our midst? That'd be nice. But we're talking about, what, a spiritual kingdom here, right? And we normally think of, actually, Jesus as a king in three different kingdoms. Kingdom of power. Back, uh, Pastor Wade today preached about Jesus in all things here on this earth. And so he rules this earth as a king, kingdom of power. Kingdom of grace would be him ruling over what? His church and kingdom of glory ruling in heaven, right? But here we talk about a spiritual kingdom, your kingdom come. So when does God's kingdom first come to us? When does God's ruling and reigning in our hearts first come to us, usually, as Christians? Baptism, right. And so Luther, again, uh, in his explanation, talks about the same thing. Uh, How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit so that by His grace we believe His Holy Word and lead godly lives in time uh, and there in eternity. So again, notice how Luther, in his explanation to thy kingdom come, goes back to those same two things. God gives us his Holy Spirit, we um, receive his word, and we live lives according to that word. So again, teaching and life are to be dedicated to him, set apart for him. Okay? And of course, uh, this is, we think, not the kind of kingdom that the people who, who lined up on Palm Sunday 
to receive Jesus in Jerusalem were, were waiting for. They were waiting very much for an earthly kingdom. Let's get rid of those Romans. Let's set up our own earthly kingdom here. And uh, you can rule. Boy, what a great king he would be, right? He can feed 5,000 uh, men with five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, heal all kinds of people of all their diseases. Even bring people back from the dead again. What a great king he would be. And he, of course, came to do something much different than that. He ruled uh, not with a crown of gold, but ironically on the cross, he hangs there with a crown of thorns on his head. And that is a better signal as to what kind of kingdom he came to establish. All right, next one. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what do we mean by daily bread? Are we talking about... uh, you know, you go to the Schnucks or Deerbergs and pick up a loaf of, uh, a loaf of bread and bring it home. Give us, give us that, Lord. That's included, I guess we could say. But normally, and Luther's explanation of this, if you remember, is, goes on and on and on. So this is the, usually we've, we teach confirmation class, that this is the only petition where we ask for something physical or material. Okay? And remember, Luther goes on. I'll just read this uh, quickly for you. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers. So does God provide daily bread for unbelievers? Does God provide daily bread for uh, worshipers of Satan? Yeah. But, he says, uh, he gives uh, to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people, but we in this petition... Pray that God would lead us to realize this and receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Okay? So that's the difference, right? We realize the source of this daily bread and give thanks to the giver. It's not that we're the only ones that receive it. Everybody receives it. But we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that all of this comes from God. And boy, we can be so tempted, can't we, to think that this is... My house, my car, my, 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 my. It's all given as a gift from God. You know, as Paul says, against to the Ephesians, what do you have that you did not receive, right? It's all a gift from God. Now, then Luther goes on, so what is this daily bread? Okay, what is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as... Food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. So basically, every physical, material item, and even the people, even our spouse, and so on, we recognize is a gift from God, okay? And we give thanks to him. Now, having said that, and again, this is what we teach in confirmation class, but having said that, Luther in 1519 delivered some lectures on the Lord's Prayer. And when he got to this petition, give us this day our daily bread, He not only talked about the physical things, such as we just mentioned here, but he made the jump to the living bread from heaven who comes down. Who would that be? Jesus. Yeah, the life-giving bread. 
And it was, he, he was saying, so we're praying not only for these physical things, but that daily we would have also this living bread from heaven, uh, the one of whom we partake and hunger no more. And he even made the jump to here in time and in the heavenly banquet to come. Okay? So while we, as I say, we teach in confirmation, and it is certainly, I think, is correct to teach uh, our junior confirmands that this is what we're talking about, and Luther's small catechism put it that way. That's the way heads of households were to teach their children back at that time. But again, Luther, in other contexts, did not limit it to just physical, material things, necessities of life, but went much further, of course, uh, to include Christ. Okay? Um, forgive us our sins. And notice here, he uses two different words. Forgive us our sins, for we, for, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now there are three, in the original language, there are really three main words that are used for sin. The first one is this one here, which has the sort of the connotation of missing a target or missing a mark. And so you can think of a, like a bullseye over there on the, on the wall, and I've got a bow and arrow, and I pull back the bow and let the arrow go, and I miss the whole target, right? You think of the target as God's law, what he wants us to do. We, one way of speaking of sin is missing that mark, okay, completely. Another way that we pray, of course, in our Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our what? Trespasses, right? And you can think of sin as trespassing. If there's a line, let's use this line right here, and I'm standing right now in the area where God wants me to be in terms of his law, and here's over on the other side of this line is where I'm not supposed to go, because that's against his law. And what do I do when I sin? I trespass over, right? Into a place I'm not supposed to be, not supposed to go. Okay? Then finally, the, and the one that's used in the second verse here, uh, sometimes we'll hear uh, it expressed in terms of indebtedness. In fact, some of the translations, maybe you've said this, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And so uh, the idea of sin being when you sin against somebody, and that's more of a, obviously a financial uh, term, but think of it as you sin against somebody else, you are indebted to them, right? And it's another way of thinking about it. So again, we're talking about the same thing here, but it's just different ways of expressing the same thing. In other words, sin itself. What is assumed by Jesus in verse 4? What are we doing? Bruce. Okay, yeah, we're sinning. Yeah, well, that's very good. That's, that's the first thing we, we can conclude from that verse. But then after somebody sins against us, what, what is Jesus assuming we are doing? We are forgiving others, right? And, of course, remember, he told the parable of the unforgiving servant, right, to kind of demonstrate that again. Uh, it is just assumed that we as Christians who have been forgiven a tremendous amount, right, 
that, that we could never repay are forgiving others as they sin against us. And boy, that can be hard to do at times, can't it? That can be very hard to do at times, to let go uh, and, and not... You know, I've always said to people, we could, we could talk a long time about this, but I've had, a couple times I've had people come up over the years and say, you know, Pastor, I'm really troubled because this person did this, this, and that, and I can't forget what happened. I can't get that out of my mind, and it bothers me. Have I really forgiven them? So if we forgive someone, does that mean that we're supposed to not even remember that that happened anymore? No. We may never be able to forget <laughs> what happened. It may have been so hurtful and so damaging to our life or to someone else. But how do I know when I have forgiven? I always say it's not whether you can remember it or not, but it's how do you remember it. Do you remember it with feelings of vengeance, uh, wanting to get back at them, hoping something really bad happens in their life? Or do you simply remember that it happened? There's, there's this notion of, of letting go. Letting go of that desire to get back at them. Remember, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? Letting go of that, of that desire to get back at them letting go of that desire that something really bad happened in their life so that they can, they can really suffer like they made you suffer. And that is forgiving. You may never be able to forget what happened, right? So it's assumed here by Jesus, as it is in Matthew, that we are forgiving as we have been forgiven so much. And then finally, lead us not into temptation. God leading us, would God ever lead us into temptation? To sin? No. Uh, James, we won't look at it, but says, when anyone is tempted, let them not say that, what, God is tempting me. And actually, again, the original language here, the idea of God is already doing this. He is already not leading us into temptation. In other words, you could actually translate this, continue not leading us into temptation. Okay. And, of course, it is not God's desire that we sin. And so he does not. Now, um, deliver, deliver us from evil is not in here, but actually in the Matthew account, if we were to read it again in the original language, it's uh, deliver us from the evil one. Who would that be? Satan. Yeah. And so, um, again, we, we think about... Um, the idea of God not leading us into temptation, again from Luther, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, and so on. He goes on uh, after that. So again, it's the idea that we would be protected from the, the uh, we might say, the unholy triumvirate, right? The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. Those three things that, you know, war against us as Christians. Okay? All right, so that's a little bit of a look through that prayer, which again is different than what he taught his disciples. In, in the sense, it's not 
a lot of it is the same, obviously, but it, it does not include every petition uh, that is in the Matthew account. Okay? Let me stop here for a second before we launch into uh, the next little section here. Any comments or questions just on the Lord's this first part, verse, uh, first four verses? Yes. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, interesting. Uh, for those listening. Uh, online or on radio, the comment was made that a few years ago the Roman Catholic Church was at least discussing changing that petition, lead us not into temptation, because they were feeling it was misleading. Is that right? Uh, so they were, yeah. I did not hear about that. That's, that's interesting. I, I guess, personally speaking, I mean, you could translate things differently, but I, were they talking about taking it out or changing the... Okay. Okay. Yeah, I did not. I did not hear that. I know of no such movement in the Lutheran Church anyway to change, change or take it out. Mark. Testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the comment was made. There have been some different translations. Bring us not to the time of testing or tempting, and uh, so I think. If there is a desire, it is to maybe get across the meaning of what this means. Um, but I think, again, if we can rightly understand what it means, there's certainly nothing wrong. God, We know God does not tempt us to sin. And I think that's the idea behind it, is, as Luther explained it. Okay, any other comments or questions? All right, let's... Oh, yes, Dennis. Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, we're going to... Uh, so the question was, uh, what about... We have trials and temptations, right, in this, in this life, in this world. And we're going to get into the whole subject of theodicy here, which I'll just spend just a couple minutes, or not even a couple minutes on. But obviously we do. Could God prevent any bad thing from ever happening in our life? Sure. God allows, and, and Job is a good example of this, right? God sets the limits as to how far Satan goes. And then um, God then, remember, I quoted earlier Romans 8.28, that God works for good in all things. And Paul is not saying there that all things are good, is he? But God works in the midst of all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that even in the midst of trial and suffering and bad things in life, God can be at work for our good purpose, which is ultimately our salvation. And uh, is at work, promises to be at work even, in the midst of those things. Now to complicate the matter even more for you, we have scripture like Hebrews 12 that talks about the discipline of the Lord. Right? 
Now, when you're on the receiving end, I don't know that we sit back and, and say, gee, I wonder if this is the discipline of the Lord or if the Lord is allowing this to happen in my life. When you're on the receiving end, uh, you're suffering, right? You're in a bad way. But all we can do is go to God's Word and say, for some reason, unknown to me, God has allowed this to occur in my life or in my loved one's life. And we sit back and pray that God will be at work in the midst of whatever this is. I have said this repeatedly to people who have had something in their life. I've said, I know how painful this is, but look around and watch for God to be at work in the midst of this, right? I said that on March 22 of 2020 in a sermon. What would I have been talking about? Pandemic. I said, as bad as this is, we are going to see God at work in the midst of this. Did we? Absolutely we did. I won't go on and do the catalog of things we saw God do right here just within this congregation and this school. So I don't know if that at all addresses your question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think there is a difference between God actually doing... We, we know that God does not tempt us to sin, or God is not the author of evil, but God does allow things into our lives. And again, is at work, even in the midst of those things, to work for our eternal welfare. And also, God does discipline us at times. Just as Hebrews 12 talks about a father, the way God disciplines us compares it to the way a father disciplines his child. In fact... It's a sign of your legitimacy as a child in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12. And again, as I say, when you're on the receiving end of it, uh, I don't know that we sit around and, and try to dissect, well, what's happening here? Uh, is God allowing this? Is God disciplining me in some way? Again, it's all for our good. Okay? But again, that's different than God willing that I sin, which we know is opposed to his, you know, sin is abhorrent to him. So there is that difference. All right? All right, real quickly, let's move on. I want to say that we at least got through a few verses here. Uh, verse 5, And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, or we should say persistence, impudence or insistence, uh, or persistence, persistence is probably better, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, to understand this, we have to understand that in this time and in this culture, hospitality was everything. In fact, hospitality was a community responsibility. If you did not show hospitality to someone who came, it brought shame upon your own household and upon the community. So now, last week we had the gospel lesson about Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and... 
Martha. And what was Martha all concerned about? Providing that hospitality. And I said in the sermon last week that it's not that she was doing anything bad or evil. In fact, she was doing what was expected in Bible times and in that culture. We don't have that same situation by far today, do we? I don't even know, you know, somebody comes over to our neighbor's house, I have no idea. Uh, number one, if they're offering them anything, I don't know who it is that's coming. It doesn't bring any shame to me if they don't show them proper hospitality, but in Bible times it did. And so Jesus tells this little story to illustrate that, of course, he says, you know, would anybody really do that? Of course not, was the expectation. The guy would get up and would help and would give him some bread for the visitor who had come. And in, in so doing would, show, would help him show proper hospitality. But notice here, he gets up because of what? The person's persistence, right. So what's Jesus trying to teach his disciples here about prayer? To be what? Persistent, yeah. If you think of, again, the, the, the God, and this, we see this through this whole section, that God is the provider of all good things. And it is his will and his desire to give us good things. Maybe not necessarily what we think is a good thing for us, but what he knows is a good thing for us. And so, we come before him with persistence in prayer. And how often doesn't that happen? that we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and it doesn't turn out the way we had hoped it would. Now let's go back, we got a couple minutes left, let's go back to confirmation class one more time. Does God answer all prayers? Does he hear and respond to all prayers that are offered to him in faith? Yes. But he has three ways of answering we normally talk about, right? Yes, if what? If what we are asking is good for us now, no, if what we are asking for is not good for us and never will be, <laughs> or wait, if what we are asking for is not good for us now, but will be later. Do we know when we pray? We may think we know, but do we ultimately know? How many times have you prayed for something in your life and you look back on it 10 years later and say, boy, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer the way I was praying it, right? Uh, where would I, I, my life would be a lot different and not in a good way if God had answered that prayer the way I prayed it, right? As you get older, you have more and more of those experiences when you think back, right? Uh, things you thought you wanted and surely this must be God's will. And you look back later and boy, I'm sure glad God knew what he was doing when he didn't answer that prayer the way I prayed it, right? Okay. So, as a rabbi, Jesus is teaching his disciples here to be persistent in prayer. And we know that it is the will of our God that we come to him with not just a few things, but with whatever is on our heart, and to lay it before him. Again, just as if we are speaking with our loving earthly father, that we come to him in that same way. And it's through his own son, Jesus, that we can come to him as our loving father. Okay? All right. We better stop there, I guess, time-wise. Uh, we'll pick up here next week and uh, continue uh, through the gospel 
of Luke. So let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.